we have this very alienated, objectifying relationship to it. And so, of course, it's intimidating. We have no idea what's going on. It feels like decay is this magic formula that we don't have the recipe to versus this naturally occurring, absolutely abundant and constant process that we might just be like dipping our toe in. You're listening to Sluggish, a newsletter and podcast on embracing the weird. I'm Jesse Meadows, and in this episode, I bring you a conversation with Cassandra Marquetos, a Los Angeles-based writer, compost practitioner, and community volunteer whose practical and poetic writings on compost actually inspired me to develop a relationship to rot of my own. Cass works in her neighborhood to divert food waste from landfills, maintain a community compost hub, and provide education on decay. She's made compost into performance art, creating what she calls an art pile for the Veilmetter Gallery, where she composted pieces of the gallery itself, and collaborating with the artist David Horvitz at the Venda Museum, where they composted pieces of the Berlin Wall. You can read her reflections on compost and the philosophical implications of decomposition at therot.substack.com, and I'll link some of her posts that we discuss in this episode in the show notes. I met Cass on Substack when I quoted her work in an essay about my surprise that the low effort compost pile I'd been keeping was actually working, despite the fact that I'd never turned it and wasn't following all the typical rules. Actually, I was breaking some. I'd started a second experimental pile where I've been composting my dog's poop in an effort to use less plastic bags. I know you're probably thinking that's really gross and everything you find on Google will tell you not to do it, but it's actually working out really well. So I wanted to talk to Cass about the stigma around waste, why compost seems to scare so many people, and how composting can transform the way we look at the world. I hope you enjoy this chat and maybe it will inspire you to get curious about your own garbage. So I guess I just want to start with the story of how you came to composting. I wish there was one straightforward linear answer to this and there's not. Compost has always been part of my life and at the same time there were many roads into the way it's in my life now and a thousand stories I could tell about how I got here. Like Mm -hmm. uh, my mom was a very enthusiastic composter. We had a huge backyard compost pile when I was a kid and I understood things about the pile by following her instruction and watching her, but I didn't know what I was doing necessarily. And then I got into it, quote unquote, a couple years ago because I was like everyone had an existential crisis about what was happening with the climate and wanted to figure out a place where my skill set intersected with a valuable leverage point. And weirdly, this was the thing, Um, (laughs) you know, taking accountability for our own waste streams and managing them is actually a significant step that most people could take to positively contribute to the state of the world as it is now. And um, there are several friends I had who I, talked with who helped kind of usher me into doing this more deliberately. I also took classes. I took classes from Nicole Masters, who's a soil scientist. And uh, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I just got horribly distracted because there is a family of coyotes right oh my outside God. my window, just hanging out. I'm, and I'm sorry. It's what? blowing my mind. Like, <laughs> Does that happen like ever? I knew that there was a family of coyotes living in my neighborhood and I was beginning to suspect that they were denning like in my yard. 
And uh-huh. but now I have confirmed it. <laughs> oh my god, um, that's so cool. I, it is so. Co- I'm just like, and it's cool because I have this little baby, and they're just hanging out right there. Uh-huh. Sorry, I'm so sorry. I feel like I ruined that intro. No, that's um, like an amazing moment. <laughs> Well, yes, I had many roads in once I started doing it. I took classes. I got advice from friends. I was invited to write about it by a friend of mine who runs a very tiny, like, indie publication. And the response to that initial piece that I wrote was so surprising to me that it was it was so positive that it provided a lot of encouragement to just keep going. And then the momentum just kind of built itself. Uh, I think my interest met the world's interest as the broader population started to wake up and be very concerned with what can I do about the climate? I feel like I also got interested in composting because of my like existential yeah, anxiety, grief, uh, I don't know, guilt also. Like I know that my compost pile is not like going to change the world, but it makes me feel like I have some kind of like agency at least. Like I can do something with my waste. I give people this lecture a lot, but I think the idea that to do anything, we have to change the world is a huge, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, misunderstanding a lot of us have about how change works. And I think we're fed that misunderstanding by lots of narratives in film, by how capitalism works, by all of these things. But I think we really have to reject this idea that something only matters if it changes the world. I think all of us need to be doing a lot of small, dedicated actions, and those things do matter. And we have to reject this idea of big, heroic, singular, individual action. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thinking about the big stuff is really like paralyzing in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. For me, it was like I either totally dissociate from this and like deny and just like throw my waste away and like don't think about it because it's like painful otherwise to think about it or I figure out another kind of thing to do with it. I think that's the other thing too is that we want to we want to do something but we can't do everything and therefore we are going to encounter a certain amount of grief and pain no matter what actions we're taking because so many of the issues are bigger than our localized little zones. We have to work to not let ourselves get discouraged while encountering and experiencing that grief honestly. Mm-hmm. At the same time as we're still maintaining dedication to to these small actions that we can take. It's easy to think the small actions don't matter or are wrong because the big things still feel like they're going wrong and you, you still have a lot of honest grief about them. But both things can coexist in you. And sort of managing that, I think, is necessary to keep doing the work we got to be doing. Yeah, you write a lot about how like people will tell you all the time that they're very intimidated or like scared to start yeah. composting. <laughs> I definitely was like it took me I started gardening and it took me like a whole season to start a compost pile. Oh, yeah. like, this is like it feels so complicated. And I don't know, I was scared. And so I wonder if you have any insight about like why people seem to be so scared of compost. I'm curious why why you felt scared of it or why you felt intimidated. But in general, I still remember what it was like to not totally know what I was doing. It wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh I just think you and I and a lot of people in America are very distanced in the day-to-day from how nature works. We have no relationship to it or concept of it. We have this very alienated, objectifying relationship to it. And so, of course, it's intimidating. We have no idea what's going on. It feels like decay is this magic formula that we don't have the recipe to versus 
this naturally occurring, absolutely abundant and constant process that we might just be like dipping our toe in. You know, nothing in our lives prepares us to have any kind of even simplified relationship to nature. And taking that first step is just intimidating. But also if you even a Google search, how to compost online, it's very overwhelming and scientific feeling. It's like, there's so many ratios and different types of ratios and different terms for the types of things you're supposed to do. There's varying strongly held opinions about the quote unquote right way to compost. There's just so much um, confusing and very institutional feeling knowledge that is presented to you. And it feels like you you immediately shut down in response to that because you feel like you have to be an expert to even get started, which isn't true at all. I think the truth of it is you can do whatever you want in any way you want and figure it out as you go. And that's totally fine. But nobody's really telling you that. Or I'm sure people are, but they aren't the first return Google search results. <laughs> yeah, I think Google is what happened to me because I was like, I spent a really long time just reading about it first because I'm just kind of like that already. Like, I just love to like research a thing to death and know everything about it. Oh, yeah. But then I knew too much and, I, and it was like really conflicting information. I know. And compost is so con- con- like contingent on so many factors. There's no right way to compost that's universally applicable. There's just a mixing board of where do you live? What do you, what are your inputs? What's your physical ability? What do you need to use your compost for? And you could have a completely different approach to compost based on slight variations and all of those factors. When most people are instructing people on how to compost, they, they pick a compost process and approach that they often talk about as though it's definitive. So if you're not able to do those things or it doesn't make sense for you, you're just like, oh, I can't compost. This is compost. I can't do it. That's not really true about what compost is either. A lot of people, when I'm composting, they'll be like, you can't put citrus peels in the compost. And I'm like, yeah, why not? And they're like, because you can't. And I'm like, why well, not? And it's <laughs> such an abstract rule. Like, why? Can you explain yeah. like, what is the reason I think yeah. those abstract rules where it's just like, it just is that way. And I'm sorry, that stuff really bothers me. And yeah, and then also like meat, everyone's like, you can't compost meat. You can compost anything that's an organic biodegradable material. The reality is a lot of these rules emerge from best practices for managing odor in animals. Like most community compost operations, they're working at a scale where if everyone's bringing them stuff like citrus peels, which take longer to decay or stuff like meat, which tends to attract animals, then that becomes a problem for them. But if you're just in your own backyard, you can very easily self-manage a lot of these things by digging a hole and burying your meat under your pile or not caring that it takes longer for the citrus or the eggshells to decay. Like it's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But a lot of the rules come down from best practices for people managing or community compost operations, managing their piles at scale, which totally makes sense. It's extremely valid. If you're taking a lot of inputs from a lot of people, you're going to be less inclined to want to like manage all the, all of these different and differently decaying and, and different things that require different processing to put them into the pile so that you're keeping the pile decaying in an even clip. You're managing a lot more when you're managing at scale. It's just your own backyard pile. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> oh, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that. The dog poop also is one of those things where I was like, this has to be possible. But when I Googled it, everyone was like, dog poop is toxic. All you can do is put it in a bag and throw it in the trash. That's the safest thing. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, it might be the safest thing given that there's always a a small chance of there being pathogens present in waste streams from living creatures. I think people underestimate the antibiotic properties of the average well-run compost pile. It's basically a giant immune system that is very, very healthily equipped to fight off and manage pathogens. 
I'm definitely not advocating that everyone out there just right now go throw a bunch of poop into their compost pile. <laughs> yeah. But a well-managed compost pile really, really is good at sorting itself out. But I think this fear that people have about what they put in their compost pile, I do think is kind of rooted in our weird, puritanical, clean obsession. Mm-hmm. We're not really inclined to believe that things are resilient. We try to protect them. That's just the tendency. Yeah. And it applies to compost too. The compost pile is very resilient. It's a very healthily functioning microbiome of lots and lots of good little bacteria and fungi that are all working it out amongst themselves. And you're really contributing to its ability to be resilient when you manage it well. Um, So it can handle a lot of things. But I think people's tendency is to be very precious and to protect the pile from having to deal with hard hard things, not realizing that those things actually make the pile stronger and more capable. You can extend this metaphor to many things in life, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, I was reading something the other day about gardening and someone was like, you know, if you want to grow tomatoes, you have to invest in a raised bed and you have to get all this expensive like soil and you have to fertilize regularly. And like I went out back (laughs) to take pictures of my compost to send you and there were like tomato seedlings growing out of my compost like I hadn't done (laughs) anything to them at all so it's so funny like we are very precious about plants and like we don't really need to be (laughs) there's not a lot of trust that these things can sort themselves out Uh, I'm laughing because my old my old compost pile at my old house was very big and very active and but it was also cool it was a cool pile it didn't really get above like 85 degrees and literally everything that I put into it would spontaneously re-sprout so and my entire vegetable garden was just food scraps that had re-sprouted out of my compost pile I had sweet potatoes zucchinis tomatoes I swear to God, I had like beans sprouting in there. Like there was just, there were so many mystery sprouts all the time and I would just transfer them over to my garden. And it was such an abundant forest of food that had just kind of spontaneously re-sprouted from whatever fruit scraps I had put into my compost pile. And it was completely fine. I also, though, I do test my compost pile with some regularity, you know, just to see what's going on with it. A lot of that is curiosity on my part. I'm interested to know bacterial versus fungal activity, if there are pathogens present, et cetera, et cetera. And that is also an option for like any enterprising, adventurous composter. Just to like double check, you can always like test your compost. You can test Mm -hmm. it and see what's going on in it. I recommend it for fun and to know what's happening in your pile, but it's also a good gut check to make sure you don't have any like pathogens or dangerous, potentially Mm -hmm. dangerous things present in it. Yeah, I think I should test my dog poop pile because I have separate piles because I was like looking at it as an experiment and I didn't want to just like throw everything together and have it be a disaster. (laughs) Yeah, that's that actually points to something else, though, that people are very nervous about what they're going to do with their compost pile. And I'm like, you don't have to do anything with it. You can just let it sit there. Like you don't have to garden with it. You don't have to find somewhere to use it. You can just not throw your food in the trash and mm-hmm. the pile could just sit there and it's still going to be a net positive for you, the world that, you know, you don't have to do anything with it. You can just hang out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I'm not really planning to use that compost. It was kind of just solely a way to deal with the problem of like, what do I do with all this dog food? Because I have two dogs. So how do you build the pile, the dog poop pile? How did you decide to start doing this? And how did you build your first dog poop compost? Well, I Googled, I was like Googling incessantly and getting all this stuff about how it's impossible. And I was like, doesn't make sense because I've watched, like if you leave poop in a yard, it just kind of like sinks into the soil over time Mm -hmm. and disappears. So Mm -hmm. I was like, it doesn't make any sense. Why are we putting this in a plastic bag? And then throwing it in a landfill 
it just started to really bother me. So I was Googling and Googling and I found this like USDA PDF. It was like guidance for working dog kennels in Alaska for like how to build compost piles for them. And so I was like, okay, this is possible. This is like a government document. You know, people are doing this. This has been like studied. And then I found the Humanora Handbook. I don't know if Mm. you're familiar by Joseph Jenkins. He created this system. It's like a, a compost toilet system for human waste, but I kind of like adapted his system for my backyard. And so it's basically like you have a like a five gallon bucket and you put like a layer of waste and then you put a layer of sawdust. And I have like a mm-hmm. ton of sawdust because my partner is a woodworker. So we just have like endless <laughs> supplies of sawdust. Oh my God, you're like a composter's dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of worked out really well. I, they just got into woodworking like in the past year. So I was like, cool, this is perfect. So you put poop and then sawdust and like make sure you cover it really well. And then you just kind of like collect it in a bucket. And then when the bucket's full, you dump it into a pile and then you kind of like surround it with hay underneath it and around the sides and then like cover it on the top. And so like it really doesn't smell at all. Sawdust is a wonder compost ingredient for mitigating odors. You know, every compost needs its ratio of nitrogen and carbon. Sawdust is considered high carbon it's just an amazing add to a pile if you're worried about smells. Wood chips and sawdust, extremely helpful for the purposes of managing odor. Uh, recently at this community compost pile that I manage in Echo Park, one of our volunteers started bringing buckets of sawdust from Angel City Lumber, which is just like a lumber yard that's in LA. And it's just been such a game changer because we get so much smelly, rotting food. And I'm very conscious of not terrorizing the neighbors with the odor and the sawdust has just it's just cut all odors from the pile it's the best okay that makes sense then why he's like he was very insistent in the book like sawdust you have to use sawdust. yes Yes. (laughs) so yeah and i've been really surprised like it feels cleaner and like easier than what we were doing before like just gathering Mm -hmm. in plastic bags and then throwing in the trash like that smelled really bad because the plastic bags would be sitting there and like There would be like flies and stuff, but the pile doesn't smell at all. And I was like worried about it because our yard is pretty close to Mm -hmm. our neighbors. And it's kind of like my my like dirty secret. Like I don't want to tell them. I live in fear of them like seeing me collecting, scooping poop and like putting in a bucket and being like, what the fuck are they doing? (laughs) But I mean, the reality is it's so much cleaner of a solution because you don't Mm -hmm. have a bunch of poop sitting around in plastic rotting in the sun and attracting insects and bugs and it's you know (laughs) yeah so much better to do what you're doing out of respect to your neighbors there's just the stigma to overcome the stigma because we haven't really thought about these things Mm -hmm. we have this really mythological relationship to our trash where we're like when throwing stuff away is the equivalent of cleaning up just because it's exited your immediate periphery but it's the filth it's literally the filthiest possible way to handle waste stream though It's so crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that was something I, the main takeaway that I got from the human or handbook because he explains like the nutrient cycle and how our waste systems work versus how like decay works. And I was like, oh my God, like, do I not believe in sewer systems anymore? Like, it really doesn't make sense when you like really think about how that stuff works. Sorry, one sec, just a quick tangent to give you some more info. 
while I was editing this, I realized we didn't explain what the nutrient cycle is, which is kind of important context for that joke I made about not believing in toilets anymore. Basically, as Joseph Jenkins explains it, the human nutrient cycle is what happens when people eat food, excrete that food, and then that waste breaks down into the soil again to grow more food. And if that sounds scary to you, Jenkins does give guidelines for composting shit safely, which involve getting the pile to a certain temperature for a certain amount of time in order to kill all pathogens and leaving the pile to sit untouched for at least a year. Putting our waste in landfills and sewer systems breaks this cycle by creating waste that doesn't go back into the earth, which actually ends up being more toxic because sewer systems are kind of prone to breaches that end up in our waterways. Like when we have those hundred year monster climate change storms that seem to be flooding our cities more and more often. Okay, back to the talk. And yeah, like you're saying, it's very abstract. Like we just like put it on the curb and it disappears and we're like, it's gone, but it's not. There's this great book, Dirt, The Ecstatic Skin of the Earth. And uh, William Bryant, I think, is the author. He talks about interviewing this guy who became this compost savant and like wandered the world, like trying to like preach the gospel of compost to everyone. And his big thing is like when you throw something away, there is no away. There is no away. It's just going somewhere else, someone else's problem to deal with. And Sometimes I get a bit uh, frustrated with people's squeamishness for that reason. Mm -hmm. There is a certain amount of frustrating naivete in thinking that you shouldn't or can't deal with this. Like you have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's part of being a human in the world, actually. And it's a weird anomaly that we haven't had to deal with it for the last blip of time on this earth. Yeah. And I think the abstractness really adds to the the scariness that we were talking about before because if you just don't know like it's a big mystery but now that i see now that i've like done it and seen how it works it's not scary anymore yeah that's that's the big thing when i do teach people i don't want to give them every possible piece of information up front i don't want to be exhaustive i want to give them the first step to just get them in relationship to some compost And then they'll learn as they go. That's a bit my philosophy. I guess it's anti-institutional knowledge and more pro-intuitive knowledge. But I think each has its place. I think for compost, intuitive knowledge is the better entry point. I I don't want to tell you uh, ratios and formats and different construction possibilities. I just want to get you to put some things in a pile and go look at them every day, observe, smell, and touch. That's it. And over a week, you'll be totally shocked how much you intuitively understand about what's going on and how interested you are in it. And then from there, you'll want to keep learning and you'll be curious and you'll seek. You know, it's just giving people that first step and getting them getting them in the door. I wrote like a 50 page, I joke and say it's like a primer on decay. And the idea mm-hmm. of the book is that I'm teaching you to teach yourself instead of telling you prescriptively everything you need to know. And it's called Compost This Book. Uh, which is the joke is when you're done with the book, you don't need it anymore because I've taught you how to teach yourself. And so the last page is instructions on how to compost the book to Mm -hmm. start your first compost pile. And the book of course is printed on recycled paper with vegetable inks, all of these things so that it's biodegradable safely. I'm trying to just put something out there that when you Google is not overwhelming, but is more of a welcoming. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. That's so cool. Your writing got me to try composting because 
just being like, it's it's going to be okay. Like, just try it and see what happens. That whole philosophy that you have was just like so comforting to me. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> I think I was trying to make the experience I wish I had been able to more easily find when I was trying to do it. I was trying to like rebuild the pile that my mom had when I was growing up and didn't really know what I was doing. And I recently actually reviewed some initial texts I sent to somebody where I was like, how does compost work? I was like, I'm very, I also tried Googling and I was confusing and I didn't understand what I was being told. And I still really like clearly remember what it was like to not understand. And I really Mm -hmm. try to hold on to that because I mostly work with and teach people who are absolute, absolute beginners. And the level of not knowing that I had was huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I want to go back to what you were saying about composting the book because Mm -hmm. I feel like there are a lot of things that I'm not composting that I like haven't thought to compost. Mm -hmm. And I read uh, about the art projects that you did, the like Mm -hmm. compost performances, I guess you would call them. And how you were kind of showing people like you can compost this shirt or like this old photo of this person that you your ex that you like want to kind of have closure from or like stuff like that and I was like oh I never thought about it like that I definitely would not grow food in a compost made from a photo (laughs) book (laughs) yeah okay I think um here's the reality a lot a lot of things in our day-to-day lives have plastic in them even most books are printed using dry toner which is plastics And so I think there's an emerging knowledge of how we have a plastic problem. There's plastics in almost everything we manufacture. There are microplastics across the entire planet and all of our soil. We're finding that it's growing in our food and then it's in plant tissues. Microplastics are default everywhere. And there's very little right now that we can do about that. And being conscious of what you're putting into your compost pile that you're then using to grow food with is important. It's good to Mm -hmm. be mindful about that. The art piles that I've made weren't intended for use for growing food. In the context that I was utilizing them, it was absolutely fine to compost some books, compost some string, compost cotton, compost shirts, like uh, compo- compost a wide variety of materials, the provenance of which uh, I was not 150% positive on. If I'm recommending in a instructive way to how to build a compost, I probably wouldn't be telling people, just throw whatever you want in there. <laughs> yeah. In the context of um, a performance art project with a bit of a higher aim in crossing a bridge between biological decay and spiritual recycling and release, I think it's fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That said, there are a lot of things that we can be composting that we don't. And I'm a big fan of, of doing it. You know, I've also written about this composting blood, hair, dog fur, cotton clothing, all of those things you can. It's up to each person how experimental they want to be, I would say. But you would be shocked the number of things that actually are able to be composted if they're prepared correctly. I definitely want to try composting like my junk mail. I have just like, oh yeah. I'm like, what do I do with this? I hate this. And I have, I just keep getting it and I have no control over like not getting it. Oh yeah. I made a joke post about composting my tax documents instead of shredding (laughs) them and throwing them away. I like put them in my compost and composted them all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it feels very cathartic too. Yeah. 
especially that like bureaucratic stuff that is just like soul sucking. I know waste can be very demoralizing uh, Mm -hmm. depending on how it's treated. I don't know. I find throwing stuff away very depressing at this point. And that's definitely a side effect of composting. And I've seen this in people that I teach. It really shifts your uh, perspective as a consumer. Uh, If you go develop a relationship to a compost pile and you're invested in transforming things instead of throwing them away, quote unquote, it suddenly is a lot less appealing to buy stuff you know you can't compost. I find myself buying a lot less overt plastic. I find myself getting delivery less because of the amount of trash that I just have to put in the trash can that is involved in that. I'm just much more conscious of it. And I've really, really seen that proliferate amongst people that I teach to compost or that are volunteers at compost. It it changes how they want to buy things because it makes them think about what things are made of more consciously. Once you put on those glasses, you can't take them off of like, Mm -hmm. what are the pieces of this? What would happen? Like, can these go back to the earth? And it's less interesting if they can't. You're like, what is the point of this? I don't understand. It's such a profound shift once you, but you need to have the relationship to the pile for it to click and work for people. I find, I do find that designy tools and objects for having a pretty compost maintain that sense of alienation people have from natural processes. And they don't result in this ideological shift I'm talking about. It it just preserves this boundary. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people I know when they first start out composting, their instinct is to get a compost tumbler because it seems really like a nice solution because they're afraid that it's gross. They're afraid of smells. It looks nice. It seems easy to use, but counterintuitively all the things that make it seem like a good solution actually undermine its purpose and principle. You're still alienated from it. You can't really see it. You you can't really tell what's going on. You end up with bad compost. Most people I know never end up actually turning it because it's so easy that they're always putting it off. And you don't really learn anything about what's going on. It's a way to maintain the status quo, but gesture at, you know, this principle Mm -hmm. for most people that I know. Some people have tumblers and they use them very well and it works very well for them. And that's great. So don't come for me. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote that like a lot of people who write to you with problems with the compost, you ask them like, are you using a compost tumbler? And they're like, yeah. (laughs) First question. First question every time. When people are like, hey, I'm having some issues with my compost and I can't figure out why it's not working. I'm like, do you have a tumbler? And nine out of 10 times, <laughs> nine out of 10 times, they're like, yes. And I'm like, that's your problem. Take it out of there, put it in a heap. Let's spend a week with it. And then we'll figure out the best like structure and management strategy based on what you're putting in there and what, what carbon you have available. Most people, the challenge is carbon. What mm-hmm. can you put in there that's not food scraps? That's also a big problem. And I also think the shift of like, For me, at least, learning about microbes, I Mm. suddenly was like, oh, this is alive. Like, this is a living thing. And when I add food or like whatever things to it now, I think of it as like feeding it. And that's Mm. totally changed my relationship to it. Now I'm like, what what would the microbes like to eat? And like that kind of helps me totally figure out what to put in there. I know it's like the pile is a pet or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, especially if you have a pile that starts to become a home to visible animals mm-hmm. like salamanders or frogs or beetles, uh, worms, it's very special feeling. You do have a little outdoor terrarium in that case. And uh, I don't know what about other people, but I take great joy in watching populations of insects and other animals ebb and flow in my pile depending on what's in there and what activity is fluctuating. It's 
uh, it's a very special feeling. And it's nice to be in nurturing relationship to something, you know, mm-hmm. you're there to guide and care. I think when we are in a relationship of uh, stewardship and care to other things, that's when we are feeling our best. Mm-hmm. I've noticed I had some nasturtiums, like a bunch of extra ones. So I was like trying to put them places and I put some in the garden, like my garden beds. And then I put a couple like around the dog poop compost file and they are humongous. The ones that I put <laughs> in my garden beds are tiny and they're like not, they don't look great. And the ones around the compost are just like massive and like taking over. It really like said something to me about how beneficial the process is. Oh yeah. Never underestimate the value of a just healthily functioning soil microbiome, which that's what a compost pile is doing. You're just, you're building a soil's capacity to contain, but also deliver nutrients. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's many problems that we have with degraded soil conditions um, on planet earth right now. And one thing is that there's less nutrients overall that are in in the soil. But the other is that the soil has degraded capacity to cycle and deliver those nutrients. So even if you have plants planted in the soil, it can't get the things it needs because it needs all of them to get any of them, if that makes sense, all the macro Mm -hmm. and micronutrients and all play a role in the overall function. So yes, your friend said fertilize the tomatoes, but I think that's a common misunderstanding about gardening. You don't, you're not fertilizing the plant. You should be nurturing the soil and then the plant will take care of itself. Fertilizer is another one of those things where I realized like so much advice online is wrong (laughs) and also geared towards like buying stuff. Like here's the products you need to have a a functioning garden. If you take like even a basic course on soil science, you walk into the average garden store and it's horrifying. You're like, (laughs) what the fuck? (laughs) I kind of feel like honestly, um, we're at the stage right now with skincare products that we were 60 years ago with agriculture. Like 60 years ago with agriculture, we were like synthetic nitrogen, short-term results, amazing. And we didn't realize that what we were doing was totally disrupting and degrading the ability of a perfectly healthily functioning ecosystem to self-manage itself and that there would be diminishing returns over time and a lot of Mm long-term damage. And I feel like that's where we're at with skincare right now, (laughs) where people, there's so many parallels between how the body functions and the soil and the soil functions. And it's hard to not see that when I'm bombarded with marketing about skincare all day, every day these days. Yeah, because it's the same thing. Like there's microbes all over your skin. Yes. And again, we should be in great admiration of our body's ability to manage itself without interference. Many of the things that skincare products claim to be able to do, your body can do on its own. I don't want to get us sidetracked, but... No, I don't think it's it's a sidetrack at all. I've been thinking about like the parallels between health and and the garden and just like things Mm -hmm. that I've been noticing. And this need that we have to create order... And keep everything like orderly. And I've kind of like rejected that in my garden this year. And like, I don't know, it's been amazing. Like every day I go out and I see like a new kind of bug that I've never seen before. And I've totally just let stuff go. I don't really do very much. And I've had the same experience in like my creative life. Mm, I love that. Instead of trying to like schedule and like make to-do lists and make everything fit and like make it all orderly, I kind of have leaned into just like going with how my brain works and all these new ideas have come up, kind of like how all the new bugs have appeared in my garden. Yeah. I often think it's interesting to back up and think about what standard we are holding ourselves to 
in the garden for our skin, for our creative minds, you know, with the skincare thing, when someone's, when somebody says they have good skin or they want good skin, I always want to just stop them and be like, what does good skin mean? And where do you think you get that standard from? And Mm -hmm. is that standard serving you? And is it serving the collective? And the answer is no. That's true of, of how we think of gardens. It's true of how we think of our faces. It's true of how we think of our minds. It's, it's tr- I just always want to be what's the standard at work here and where does it come from? Mm-hmm. And I think interrogating that is it's just a helpful question to keep in your mind uh, about most things. Yeah, because it's usually the standard is like how productive is this thing? Yeah. Like how yeah. gardeners online talk a lot about how productive their garden is. And I'm always like, is that the reason that you're growing stuff? Like, because you want to, produce yeah and I think the same is true with like mental health or health in general it's like how productive are you oh yeah there's that great quote about it's no measure of um goodness to be sane in an insane world or what is that quote I'm Mm -hmm. butchering it but you know what I mean it's very similar I it's people have a range of goals and context of their personal gardens and I want to respect like the diversity of those needs and if Mm -hmm. someone is growing food and they're feeding themselves. I think that's amazing. I think, I I do think that's amazing. And in that case, maybe how many vegetables and fruits you're able to produce is an important factor. I think it's also Mm -hmm. nice to keep in mind though, like how many different pollinators are showing up in your garden? Are there birds nesting there? Are you serving a broader ecology or no? I, I just think it's nice to start to notice those things as well in context of whatever your needs for a space are. There's a balance. There's a balance. And, um, you know, I do a lot of work in ecological restoration as well, using native Mm -hmm. plants. And so many of my friends these days hit me up for like landscaping advice. And I'm always like, I'm not the person you want to ask because you're, I just not tuned to that signal. I'm like not tuned to that frequency. You want Mm -hmm. like privacy hedges and a fruit tree and things that serve an aesthetic that you have in mind. And I'm just tuned to a different frequency, which is what plants and animals live in your zone and how can Mm -hmm. you cohabit with them and what serves them as well. But like, that's the frequency I'm tuned into. That's all. And Mm -hmm. I always am like, don't ask me. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking of our spaces as serving more than ourselves is a really important small action we could be taking to serve the collective at the moment. I do think we're at such a strange precipice right now. And, oh God, I just think everything counts. I think if you're composting mm-hmm. and I think if you have a two by two patch of cement in your backyard and you rip up that cement and you plant plants instead, I, I think we just all need to be doing that. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think it matters. I think about the apartment that I'm in right now and I'm in an old, old apartment building that's on kind of a unmanaged hillside that has Mm -hmm. very huge trees on it as a result and is very unpaved and there is legitimately a 10 degree temperature differential between two blocks down and where I am because it's not cemented and there's big trees and Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like some of us can be taking control in our spaces to be creating this kind of environment a lot of people that write to me and talk to me have backyards they have yard spaces they they have access to an autonomy over a tiny portion of land and mm-hmm. i'm just like uh you know yeah i i did want to ask you about the um bag in the closet method that you've written about oh for- under the sink uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i'm really interested in like how people who don't have land could still be composting 
Totally. So the bag under the sink thing comes from the complete book of composting by Rodell, which is like um, many consider that like canonical. That's where I got that from. I did not mm-hmm. come up with that, but it is it it does totally make sense. You're you're providing under your sink all the things that uh, decay needs to function, which is a little bit of moisture, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. You're just putting them into a bag and you're putting them under your sink. And there's no doubt that a compost pile probably will thrive in a more expansive way if it's in direct contact with the earth somewhere outside. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. It's Mm -hmm. just uh, as you kind of get the bag going, you're going to have a big bag of messy stuff under your sink. And that's um, unfavorable to a lot of people. But I would be a big advocate for powering through and getting over it. Uh, I did recently write about Bokashi. Bokashi is a different type of process that's maybe a bit more palatable to people because it's in an airtight bucket and it looks a little bit more discreet and uh, it's very decidedly odor-free if you're doing it right. And, And the Bokashi process is not traditional composting, it's fermentation. But the idea is that like you're you're kind of pickling your food scraps, which then makes them easier to deal with on the other side. But you're kind of like putting them away in a discreet place and leaving them alone while they attain this more uh, pure state of management, <laughs> if that makes sense. Those are the two ways that I mostly recommend for people that want to manage their food waste in small spaces. But there are ways when you're in an apartment and you don't have a yard and you don't have a garden that the responsibility is just it's a bit different of a cycle because once you have the finished product, you need somewhere to put it. If you can just go to your garden and use it or just leave it out there and not have to think about it, it's easier. But I, I will make the case that it's worthwhile to take the extra time that it takes to small space compost and then find a place to put the finished product. Even if it's just the two inches of bare earth that are in the divide on your front sidewalk between Mm -hmm. your house and the street, (laughs) you know, like, just yeah. just don't put it in the trash. Yeah. Or like, I know you do a lot of community garden compost yeah. projects too. Like that's also an option, I think. Yeah. The full advice that I give people in small spaces is the one bag method can work. You can, you can work with vermicompost inside. Bokashi, I don't tend to recommend the countertop composters that use electricity. Some people though, that's just what they need. No getting around it. They're not going to do the one bag under the sink. They want like a device that they can put things into and not have to think about it. And you know what? So be it. But finding some way to transform whatever food waste is coming out of your kitchen into some material that is less putrid, where you're kind of expediting its transition into a more manageable material. That's basically what's happening with Bokashi and with things like the Lomi countertop composter. In both cases, you're taking food scraps, you're you're skipping over the part of the process that involves the most liquids and odors. You're transforming the material into something that's more manageable and easy to use, that's odorless, that's dry in some cases. And then you're finding something to do with that final product. And the things to do with that final product are gorilla compost. Put it anywhere. Find a compost pile to put it in. Give it away to a friend. Find like anything. This is where Google can be your friend. Just find mm-hmm. anything to do. And if you can't find something, literally just gorilla compost that stuff somewhere. That's kind of what I tell people. I mean, and the other thing to do though is just Google your local community garden. They probably have a community compost operation happening. Put your food scraps in your freezer where they won't smell either and they can hang out. And then just bring them once a week or once every two weeks to the community garden, drop them off. If you give me a big frozen block of food scraps, I'm going to love you because that's slowly. <laughs> slow release moisture into the pile over time as it 
uh, defrost, which is great. Huh? That's what I do. And I was wondering, like, is this bad? I'm I'm putting ice in my pile, but no. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I gather yeah. mine in like a little bin in my freezer. Yeah, it's like a food ice cube. It's yeah, it's fun. <laughs> I put a lot of faith in the pile's ability to figure itself out. Mm-hmm. Lots of people do not feel that way. Manage compost. They like to provide things for the pile that are absolutely ideal for its ongoing decomposition. I'm more comfortable with a lot of piles I manage with knowing that sometimes I'll be adding things in a way that will slow down or alter the rate of decomposition in some way for a period of time. But I know that we have time. There's time Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I'm managing a community compost pile in a small garden. You know, I'm not running a farm that's millions of people. So it's okay. Yeah. But I like, I love putting faith in the pile. It'll figure itself out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's also why I love your work because it's so, it's not just practical. Like there's always some philosophical or like poetic thing in it. I really connect to that. And I think that like a lot of people are looking for meaning. Thanks. Yeah. Nice to hear because I th- I was thinking as of last night about taking an indefinite hiatus from the Substack, but I'm not sure. I'm still thinking it through. I pause all my paid subscriptions, obviously, but I was just, I don't know. I just had this I'm big fan of intuition. I just had this intuitive feeling like it's time to stop for a bit or something. Mm-hmm. And I think having a weekly practice is really helpful. And it was really helpful. I got this book out of it, but now mm-hmm. I might be ready to hit some kind of reset or give myself space to change and I need to break some routines and habits in order to create the space to do that or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Something's pushing in me just being like, step back, step back for yeah. a second. I think that's really good to like listen to intuition, especially in terms of like a creative practice. Yeah. If you try to force yourself to make something, it's not going to be great. Well, I think also I started this Substack on such a whim And then I've been writing it for so long now and Mm -hmm. I didn't expect that. uh, And I've loved it and I've gotten a lot out of it, but I think it's time to like step back and be like, okay, what am I actually trying to do instead of just hit a weekly deadline? Yeah. Maybe there's more form or something deeper or different that I could do with this. Maybe it's time to evolve. And I don't, I don't totally know how I would yet. And I think I just need some time to think about it for so long. It's just been, the rule has just been like right once a week. But now it's like, I'm ready for like a new rule. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the things that are working just like stop working and you have to like try something else. So yeah. I think you should just do whatever you're interested in that is exciting is my rule. I'm like, if I'm excited about it, I'm going to do it. And when it starts to be like, I feel dread about something, yeah. then I'm like, I have to stop doing this. Even if I don't have like a logical or like rational reason. It's funny. I, yeah, I totally, totally. I don't like with this particular thing, I don't feel dread. I just have this feeling. I'm like, you need to Mm -hmm. do this. And it's Mm -hmm. very, it's a very strong feeling. And I don't, I don't have a particular problem with writing once a week. I love writing my Substack, but I, I don't know, some intuition is pinging in me. That's just like release or something. I'm not sure. We'll see. (laughs) I've also been, you know, I'm keeping this arena board that's just like this whole archive of like different references to decay across like a variety of surfaces, like different poems and books and screenshots from movies and um, just kind of tracking loosely the way concepts of decay have represented themselves and evolved over time and are in like it's very it's my little map i'm making a little decay Mm -hmm. library kind of or like an archive i guess that could be a book one day too well that's yeah 
I'm working on a second book now. I have no idea. I have no idea what it is, though. This is what I mean. I need to take a step out of the yeah. dailiness of things to long-term think. I think it's mm-hmm. not more complicated than that. Because I am working on a second book, and it, the genesis of the idea was exploring these concepts of decay and mm-hmm. and how they've changed surface. It's a lot mm-hmm. to tackle. It's such a big subject. And figuring out the tone and figuring out the scope and figuring out the approach yeah. It's hard. I keep writing myself into corners. <laughs> yeah, that's a big concept for sure. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everything that I write in sluggish and like my concept for sluggish is very much about like embracing disorder and decay, I think, is a big part of that. Mm, I love that. I have spent so much time thinking about how, you know, there's lots of smart survival biological reasons why we have a natural aversion to decay because it's a signal that something isn't edible or that something, you know, there's good reasons for the survival of an individual organism that we have these like standardized reactions, but there's a cultural intersection that happens where you get things like stigma and you get, then you get things like oppression and alienation and these other concepts that build off of sort of that biological impulse and figuring out, where and how to develop a relationship to decay that honors and also subverts simultaneously is very difficult and I think could be very good work, but figuring out how to make the case for it in a way that feels relatable and good is hard. It's like, I don't want to just lecture people. I don't want to write some academic brick. Mm -hmm. Um, Part (laughs) of me is like, maybe there's just one story that I could figure out, tell that would explicate this conceptually and that would be much more relatable for people and um yeah i don't know but i think that this idea of disorder that you're talking about is really related where again what standard are we holding ourselves to where does the need for order come from and it's never mm-hmm. it's never just structural it's 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 big picture and it's highly localized at the same time and mm-hmm. um it's very easy to challenge structural issues and much more difficult to just tell someone something they feel isn't true or good. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Something that I feel or need might be related to larger structural conditioning around me, but figuring out how to honor how I feel as a person is important still. And and that's Mm -hmm. true of other people too. Like the thing about people having productive gardens, for example, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, there's probably bigger structural, social, cultural conditioning that you could point to to be like, this is why you're feeling this way. And there's an argument to be made that this is an act feeling in, in context of this world, greater world we want to achieve. But then also, it's very, very hard to, at a practical level, look at someone and be like, this thing you love is wrong. Yeah. This way you feel is wrong and bad. You never yeah. want to be in the position of telling people that. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's always the balance. And then the same with people thinking compost is gross. I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, you think it's gross because of like all these structural reasons that like aren't actually good and have all these extremely negative ramifications in terms of like the place we're at with the world right now. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to look at you an individual and just be like how you feel is bad and wrong. It's just, I don't want to be in that position. How do you thread the needle on that? It's it's so hard. I'm like stumbling yeah. over myself talking about it even right now to you. <laughs> well, I think that like it also doesn't work. Like if you're trying to change how people think about something or if you're trying to get yeah. them to like get into composting, for example, like it doesn't work to be like, you're wrong and you're bad because like instantly people yeah. just shut down and they're like, yeah, not they won't listen to you and you've made them angry. So, yes. yeah, that's. I encounter that a lot with my work where I like critique DSM diagnoses like ADHD. Mm -hmm. 
where mm. oh I'm I, so interested in this in the beginning like <laughs> I think I came at it into much of a combative way and mm-hmm. just instantly pissed people off like I said something flippant on Twitter and oh, yeah. 82 Twitter got really R-I-T. mad at me <laughs> All right, me, all of us. Yeah, and like I realized that like I need to be more careful about how I approach a critique, especially something that's so tied to the way that somebody makes sense of the world. Yes, very well said. Very well said. I'm with you though that I feel like we do tend to like overly categorize and pathologize behaviors <laughs> in a way mm-hmm. where I'm like, I think sometimes it's very helpful for people to be like, oh my God, these things I'm experiencing, it's ADHD. But I think it can also be very punishing for people to be be told like your entire personality can be explained by like a disease or a disorder or something where it's like, Mm -hmm. wait, (laughs) I've definitely felt robbed of my humanity before where I'm like, but this just my personality. And it's like, no, it's not. You have a disorder. I do personally feel like there is a rush to pathologize behaviors. And I do think there's a time and a place when diagnoses are really helpful and constructive and are meaningful. And the further exploration of like, what people experience and how and why is important. Do you know who R.D. Lang is by any chance? R.D. Mm-hmm. Lang. Oh, I read, mm-hmm. it's over here somewhere. I have like this book of his that is my absolute favorite that kind of like talks about this. Um, here it is. The Politics of Experience. Oh, <laughs> I gotta read that. Yeah, it's really, um, I really love it. And then it was, there's that book, Strangers to Ourselves by Rachel Aviv. Did you read that by any Mm-mm. chance? You might be interested in it. She. It's three long-form lifetime case studies of three people who received certain diagnoses via the system of Western medicine. And she explores how that intersects with like different cultures and cultural expectations. And it's, it's very, I thought, well done and very, very mm-hmm. interesting in how it kind of probes some of these questions we're talking about. Uh, yes, I love book recommendations. And the other one you said was Dirt. Uh, oh, something. Dirt, the ecstatic skin of the earth. <laughs> Ooh. Which is quite the title. Sounds very sexy. (laughs) Um, To finish the thought I was saying, I think we're on the same page. It's like coming up with categories for things is helpful, but also rigid. And life is just not rigid. I just Mm -hmm. think the truth is not rigid. But it's hard because there there is value. And I don't want to totally dismiss it in the same way Mm -hmm. that I'm like pro-intuitive knowledge, but not anti-institutional knowledge. It's Mm -hmm. balance. Yeah. Anyway. This has been so great. Thank you for coming to Slugtown and talking to me about rot. I know. Oh, I didn't get to say this, but it was so cool reading that post that you wrote where you were like talking about your approach to composting. I was like, yes, this is literally exactly what I'm trying to get people to do. And you just so perfectly articulated and so written. I was like, I felt so like happy to read your post. I was like, totally obsessed blowing like posting it everywhere being like so excited about it because it's like literally the exact hope that i would have anyone like interacting with what i'm trying to put into the world you know so Mm -hmm. thank you if you enjoyed this episode and want to help make sure more people hear sluggish do leave a nice review or a five-star rating on spotify or apple podcasts You can also subscribe to get these in your inbox at sluggish.substack.com. And there is a comment section over there if you want to discuss anything in the episode. Thanks for listening and do stay slimy.